Chapter 1, Part 2 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians by Martin Luther. Translated by Theodore Grabner. Chapter 1, Part 2. Verse 7. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you. Here again the Apostle excuses the Galatians while he blames the false apostles for disturbing their consciences and for stealing them out of his hand. How angry he gets at these deceivers. He calls them troublemakers, seducers of poor consciences. This passage adduces further evidence that the false apostles defamed Paul as an imperfect apostle and a weak and erroneous preacher. They condemn Paul. Paul condemns them. Such warfare of condemnation is always going on in the church. The papists and the fanatics hate us, condemn our doctrine, and want to kill us. We in turn hate and condemn their cursed doctrine. In the meanwhile, the people are uncertain whom to follow and which way to turn, for it is not given to everybody to judge these matters. But the truth will win out. So much is certain. We persecute no man, neither does our doctrine trouble men. On the contrary, we have the testimony of many good men who thank God on their knees for the consolation that our doctrine has brought them. Like Paul, we are not to blame that the churches have trouble. The fault lies with the Anabaptists and other fanatics. Every teacher of work righteousness is a troublemaker. Has it ever occurred to you that the Pope, cardinals, bishops, monks, and that the whole synagogue of Satan are troublemakers? The truth is, they are worse than false apostles. The false apostles taught that in addition to faith in Christ, the works of the law of God were necessary unto salvation. But the papists omit faith altogether and teach self-devised traditions and works that are not commanded of God, indeed are contrary to the word of God, and for these traditions they demand preferred attention and obedience. Paul calls the false apostles troublers of the church because they taught circumcision and the keeping of the law as needful unto salvation. They insisted that the law must be observed in every detail. There were supporters in this contention by the Jews, with the result that those who were not firmly established in faith were easily persuaded that Paul was not a sincere teacher of God because he ignored the law. The Jews were offended at the idea that the law of God should be entirely ignored by Paul and that the Gentiles, formerly idol worshippers, should gratuitously attain to the station of God's people without circumcision, without the penitentiary performance of the law, 
by grace alone through faith in Christ Jesus. These criticisms were amplified by the false apostles. They accused Paul of designs to abolish the law of God and the Jewish dispensation, contrary to the law of God, contrary to their Jewish heritage, contrary to apostolic example, contrary to Paul's own example. They demanded that Paul be shunned as a blasphemer and a rebel, while they were to be heard as true teachers of the gospel and authentic disciples of the apostles. Thus Paul stood defamed among the Galatians. He was forced to attack the false apostles. He did so without hesitation. Verse 7. And would pervert the gospel of Christ. To paraphrase this sentence, These false apostles do not merely trouble you. They abolish Christ's gospel. They act as if they were the only true gospel preachers. For all that, they muddle law and gospel. As a result, they pervert the gospel. Either Christ must live and the law perish, or the law remains and Christ must perish. Christ and the law cannot dwell side by side in the conscience. It is either grace or law. To muddle the two is to eliminate the gospel of Christ entirely. It seems a small matter to mingle the law and gospel, faith and works, but it creates more mischief than man's brain can conceive. To mix law and gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace, it cuts out Christ altogether. The words of Paul, and would pervert the gospel of Christ, also indicate how arrogant these false apostles were. They were shameless boasters. Paul simply had to exalt his own ministry and gospel. Verse 8. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul's zeal for the gospel becomes so fervent that it almost leads him to curse angels. I would rather that I, my brethren, yes, the angels of heaven, be anathematized than that my gospel be overthrown. The Greek word anathema, Hebrew harem, means to accurse, execrate, to damn. Paul first hypothetically curses himself. Knowing persons must find fault with themselves in order that they may all the more earnestly reprove others. Paul maintains that there is no other gospel besides the one he had preached to the Galatians. He preached not a gospel of his own invention, but the very same gospel God had long ago prescribed in the sacred scriptures. No wonder Paul pronounces curses upon himself and upon others, upon the angels of heaven if any one should dare to preach any other gospel than Christ's own. Verse 9 As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul repeats the curse, directing it now upon other persons. Before he cursed himself, his brethren, and an angel from heaven. Now, he says, 
if there are any others who preach a gospel different from that you have received from us, let them also be accursed. Paul herewith curses and excommunicates all false teachers, including his opponents. He is so worked up that he dares to curse all who pervert his gospel. Would to God that this terrible pronouncement of the apostle might strike fear into the hearts of all who pervert the gospel of Paul. The Galatians might say, Paul, we do not pervert the gospel you have brought unto us. We did not quite understand it, that is all. Now these teachers, who came after you, have explained everything so beautifully. This explanation the apostle refuses to accept. They must add nothing. They must correct nothing. What you receive from me is the genuine gospel of God. Let it stand. If any man brings any other gospel than the one I brought you, or promises to deliver better things than you have received from me, let him be accursed. In spite of this emphatic denunciation, so many accept the Pope as the supreme judge of the Scriptures. The Church, they say, chose only four Gospels. The Church might have chosen more. Ergo, the Church is above the Gospel. With equal force, one might argue, I approve the Scriptures. Ergo, I am above the Scriptures. John the Baptist confessed Christ. Hence, he is above Christ. Paul subordinates himself, all preachers, all the angels of heaven, everybody to the sacred scriptures. We are not the masters, judges, or arbiters, but witnesses, disciples, and confessors of the scriptures, whether we be Pope, Luther, Augustine, Paul, or an angel from heaven. Verse 10. For do I now persuade men? Or God. With the same vehemence, Paul continues, You Galatians ought to be able to tell from my preaching and from the many afflictions which I have endured whether I serve men or God. Everybody can see that my preaching has stirred up persecution against me everywhere and has earned for me the cruel hatred of my own people, in fact, the hatred of all men. This should convince you that by my preaching, I do not seek the favor and praise of men, but the glory of God. No man can say that we are seeking the favor and praise of men with our doctrine. We teach that all men are naturally depraved. We condemn man's free will, his strength, wisdom, and righteousness. We say that we obtain grace by the free mercy of God alone for Christ's sake. This is no preaching to please men. This sort of preaching procures for us the hatred and disfavor of the world, persecutions, excommunications, murders, and curses. Can't you see that I seek no man's favor by my doctrine? asks Paul. If I were anxious for the favor of men, I would flatter them. What do I do? I condemn their works. I teach things only that I have been commanded to teach from above. For that I bring down upon my head the wrath of Jews and Gentiles. My doctrine must be right. It must be divine. Any other doctrine cannot be better than mine. Any other doctrine must be false and wicked. 
with Paul, we boldly pronounce a curse upon every doctrine that does not agree with ours. We do not preach for the praise of men or the favor of princes. We preach for the favor of God alone, whose grace and mercy we proclaim. Whosoever teaches a gospel contrary to ours or different from ours, let us be bold to say that he is sent of the devil. Verse 10. Or do I seek to please men? Do I serve men or God? Paul keeps an eye on the false apostles, those flatterers of men. They taught circumcision to avoid the hatred and persecution of men. To this day you will find many who seek to please men in order that they may live in peace and security. They teach whatever is agreeable to men, no matter whether it is contrary to God's word or their own conscience. But we who endeavor to please God and not men stir up hell itself. We must suffer reproach, slanders, death. For those who go about to please men, we have a word from Christ recorded in the fifth chapter of St. John. How can ye believe, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God alone? Verse 10. For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Observe the consummate cleverness with which the false apostles went about to bring Paul into disrepute. They combed Paul's writings for contradictions. Our opponents do the same. To accuse him of teaching contradictory things. They found that Paul had circumcised Timothy according to the law, that Paul had purified himself with four other men in the temple at Jerusalem, that Paul had shaven his head at Centria. The false apostles slyly suggested that Paul had been constrained by the other apostles to observe these ceremonial laws. We know that Paul observed these decora out of charitable regard for the weak brethren. He did not want to offend them. But the false apostles turned Paul's charitable regard to his disadvantage. If Paul had preached the law and circumcision, if he had commended the strength and free will of man, he would not have been so obnoxious to the Jews. On the contrary, they would have praised his every action. Verses 11-12 But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. This passage constitutes Paul's chief defense against the accusations of his opponents. He maintains under oath that he received his gospel not from men, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. In declaring that his gospel is not after man, Paul does not merely wish to state that his gospel is not mundane. The false apostles made the same claim for their gospel. Paul means to say that he learned his gospel not in the usual and accepted manner through the agency of men by hearing, reading, or writing. He received the gospel by special revelation directly from Jesus Christ. 
Paul received his gospel on the way to Damascus, when Christ appeared to him. St. Luke furnishes an account of the incident in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Arise, said Christ to Paul, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Christ did not send Paul into the city to learn the gospel from Ananias. Ananias was only to baptize Paul, to lay his hands on Paul, to commit the ministry of the word unto Paul, and to recommend him to the church. Ananias recognized his limited assignment when he said to Paul, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Paul did not receive instruction from Ananias. Paul had already been called, enlightened, and taught by Christ in the road. His contact with Ananias was merely a testimonial to the fact that Paul had been called by Christ to preach the gospel. Paul was forced to speak of his conversion to combat the slanderous contention of the false apostles to the effect that this apostleship was inferior to that of the other apostles. If it were not for the example of the Galatian churches, I would never have thought it possible that anybody who had received the word of God with such eagerness as they had could so quickly let go of it. Good Lord, what terrible mischief one single false statement can create. The article of justification is fragile. Not in itself, of course, but in us. I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. I know in what slippery places even those stand who seem to have a good footing in the matters of faith. In the midst of the conflict, when we should be consoling ourselves with the gospel, the law rears up and begins to rage all over our conscience. I say the gospel is frail because we are frail. What makes matters worse is that one half of ourselves, our own reason, stands against us. The flesh resists the spirit, or as Paul puts it, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Therefore we teach that to know Christ and to believe in him is no achievement of man, but the gift of God. God alone can create and preserve faith in us. God creates faith in us through the Word. He increases, strengthens, and confirms faith in us through His Word. Hence, the best service that anybody can render God is diligently to hear and read God's Word. On the other hand, nothing is more perilous than to be weary of the Word of God. Thinking he knows enough, a person begins little by little to despise the Word till he has lost Christ and the gospel altogether. Let every believer carefully learn the gospel. Let him continue in humble prayer. We are molested not by puny foes, but by mighty ones, foes who never grow tired of warring against us. These, our enemies, are many. Our own flesh, the world, 
the law, sin, death, the wrath and judgment of God, and the devil himself. The arguments which the false apostles advanced impress people to this day. Who are you to dissent from the fathers and the entire church, and to bring a contradictory doctrine? Are you wiser than so many holy men, wiser than the whole church? When Satan, abetted by our own reason, advances these arguments against us, we lose heart, unless we keep on saying to ourselves, I don't care if Cyprian, Ambrose, Augustine, Peter, Paul, John, or an angel from heaven teaches so-and-so. I know that I teach the truth of God in Christ Jesus. When I first took over the defense of the gospel, I remember that Dr. Staupitz said to me, I like it well, he said, that the doctrine which you proclaim gives glory to God alone and none to man, for never can too much glory, goodness, and mercy be ascribed unto God. These words of the worthy doctor comforted and confirmed me. The gospel is true because it deprives men of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness, and turns over all honor to the Creator alone. It is safer to attribute too much glory unto God than unto man. You may argue that the church and the fathers are holy, yet the church is compelled to pray. Forgive us our trespasses. I am not to be believed, nor is the church to be believed, or the fathers, or the apostles, or an angel from heaven, if they teach anything contrary to the word of God. Let the word of God abide forever. Peter erred in life and in doctrine. Paul might have dismissed Peter's error as a matter of no consequence. But Paul saw that Peter's error would lead to the damage of the whole church unless it were corrected. Therefore he withstood Peter to his face. The church, Peter, the apostles, angels from heaven, are not to be heard unless they teach the genuine word of God. This argument is not always to our advantage. People ask, whom then shall we believe? Our opponents maintain that they teach the pure word of God. We do not believe them. They in turn hate and persecute us for vile heretics. What can we do about it? With Paul we glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we gain? We are told that our glorying is idle vanity and unadulterated blasphemy. The moment we abase ourselves and give in to the rage of our opponents, Papists and Anabaptists grow arrogant. The Anabaptists hatch out some new monstrosity. The Papists revive their old abominations. What to do? Let everybody become sure of his calling and doctrine, that he may boldly say with Paul, But though we or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than ye have received, let him be accursed. Verses 13, 14 For ye have heard of my conversation in time past, 
in the Jews' religion, how that, beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in mine own nation. This passage does not contain doctrine. Paul adduces his own case for an example. I have, he says, at one time defended the traditions of the Pharisees more fiercely than any of your false apostles. Now if the righteousness of the law had been worth anything, I would never have forsaken it. So carefully did I live up to the law that I excelled many of my companions. So zealous was I in defense of the law that I wasted the church of God. Verse 14. Being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. Speaking now of the Mosaic law, Paul declares that he was wrapped up in it. To the Philippians he wrote, As touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He means to say, I can compare myself with the best and holiest of all those who are of the circumcision. Let them show me, if they can, a more earnest defender of the Mosaic law than I was at one time. This fact, O Galatians, should have put you on your guard against these deceivers who make so much of the law. If anybody ever had reason to glory in the righteousness of the law, it was I. I too may say that before I was enlightened by the gospel, I was as zealous for the papistical laws and traditions of the fathers as ever a man was. I tried hard to live up to every law as best I could. I punished myself with fasting, watching, praying, and other exercises more than all those who today hate and persecute me. I was so much in earnest that I imposed upon my body more than it could stand. I honored the Pope as a matter of conscience. Whatever I did, I did with a single heart to the glory of God. But our opponents, well-fed idlers that they are, will not believe what I and many others have endured. Verses 15, 16, 17 But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Here Paul relates that immediately upon being called by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he went into Arabia without consulting a single person. When it had pleased God, he writes, I did not deserve it. I had been an enemy of Christ. I had blasphemed his gospel. I had shed innocent blood. In the midst of my frenzy, I was called. Why? On account of my outrageous cruelty? Indeed not. My gracious God 
who shows mercy unto whom he will, pardoned all mine iniquities. He bestowed his grace upon me and called me for an apostle. We also have come to the knowledge of the truth by the same kindness of God. I crucified Christ daily in my cloistered life and blasphemed God by my wrong faith. Outwardly I kept myself chaste, poor, and obedient. I was much given to fasting, watching, praying, saying of masses, and the like. Yet under the cloak of my outward respectability, I continually mistrusted, doubted, feared, hated, and blasphemed God. My righteousness was a filthy puddle. Satan loves such saints. They are his darlings, for they quickly destroy their body and soul by depriving them of the blessings of God's generous gifts. I tell you, I stood in awe of the Pope's authority. To dissent from him I considered a crime worthy of eternal death. I thought of John Huss as a cursed heretic. I counted it a sin even to think of him. I would gladly have furnished the wood to burn him. I would have felt I had done God a real service. In comparison with these sanctimonious hypocrites of the papacy, publicans and harlots are not bad. They at least feel remorse. They at least do not try to justify their wicked deeds. But these pretended saints, so far from acknowledging their errors, justify them and regard them as acceptable sacrifices unto God. Verse 15 When it pleased God By the favor of God I, a wicked and cursed wretch, a blasphemer, persecutor, and rebel, was spared. Not content to spare me, God granted unto me the knowledge of his salvation, his spirit, his son, the office of an apostle, everlasting life. Paul speaking. God not only pardoned our iniquities, but in addition overwhelmed us with blessings and spiritual gifts. Many, however, are ungrateful. Worse. By opening again a window to the devil, many begin to loathe God's word and end by perverting the gospel. Verse 15 Who separated me from my mother's womb This is a Hebrew expression meaning to sanctify, ordain, prepare. Paul is saying, When I was not yet born, God ordained me to be an apostle and in due time confirmed my apostleship before the world. Every gift, be it small or great, spiritual or temporal, and every good thing I should ever do, God has ordained while I was yet in my mother's womb where I could neither think nor perform any good thing. After I was born, God supported me, heaping mercy upon mercy, he freely forgave my sins, replenishing me with his grace 
to enable me to learn what great things are ours in Christ. To crown it all, he called me to preach the gospel to others. Verse 15 And called me by his grace. Did God call me on account of my holy life, or on account of my pharisaical religion, or on account of my prayers, fastings, and works? Never. Well, then, it is certain God did not call me on account of my blasphemies, persecutions, oppressions. What prompted him to call me? His grace alone. Verse 16, to reveal his son to me. We now hear what kind of doctrine was committed to Paul. The doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of the revelation of the Son of God. This doctrine differs greatly from the law. The law terrorizes the conscience. The law reveals the wrath and judgment of God. The gospel does not threaten. The gospel announces that Christ is come to forgive the sins of the world. The gospel conveys to us the inestimable treasures of God. Verse 16 That I might preach him among the heathen. It pleased God, says the apostle, to reveal himself in me. Why? For a twofold purpose that I personally should believe in the Son of God, and that I should reveal him to the Gentiles. Paul does not mention the Jews for the simple reason that he was the called and acknowledged apostle of the Gentiles, although he preached Christ also to the Jews. We can hear the apostle saying to himself, I will not burden the Gentiles with the law, because I am their apostle and not their lawgiver. Not once did you Galatians hear me speak of the righteousness of the law or of works. My job was to bring you the gospel. Therefore you ought to listen to no teachers of the law, but the gospel, not Moses, but the Son of God, not the righteousness of works, but the righteousness of faith must be proclaimed to the Gentiles. That is the right kind of preaching for Gentiles. Verse 16 Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Once Paul had received the gospel from Christ, he conferred with nobody in Damascus. He asked no man to teach him. He did not go up to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of Peter and the other apostles. At once he preached Jesus Christ in Damascus. Verse 17 Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. I went to Arabia before I saw any of the apostles took it upon myself to preach the gospel to the Gentiles without delay, because Christ had called me for that purpose. This statement refutes the assertion of the false apostles that Paul had been a pupil of the apostles, 
from which the false apostles inferred that Paul had been instructed in the obedience of the law, that therefore the Gentiles also ought to keep the law and submit to circumcision. Verses 18-19 Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Paul minutely recounts his personal history to stop the cavil of the false apostles. Paul does not deny that he had been with some of the apostles. He went to Jerusalem uninvited, not to be instructed, but to visit with Peter. Luke reports the occasion in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Barnabas introduced Paul to the apostles and related to them how Paul had met the Lord Jesus on the way to Damascus, also how Paul had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Paul says that he saw Peter and James, but he denies that he learned anything from them. Why does Paul harp on this seemingly unimportant fact? To convince the churches of Galatia that his gospel was the true word of Christ, which he learned from Christ himself and from no man. Paul was forced to affirm and reaffirm this fact. His usefulness to all the churches that had used him as their pastor and teacher was at stake. Verse 20 now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Was it necessary for Paul to go under oath? Yes, Paul is reporting personal history. How else would the churches believe him? The false apostles might say, Who knows whether Paul is telling the truth? Paul, the elect vessel of God, was held in so little esteem by his own Galatians to whom he had preached Christ, that it was necessary for him to swear an oath that he spoke the truth. If this happened to Paul, what business have we to complain when people doubt our words or hold us in little regard? We who cannot begin to compare ourselves with the apostle. Verse 21 Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Syria and Cilicia are adjacent countries. Paul traces his movements carefully in order to convince the Galatians that he had never been the disciple of any apostle. Verses 22, 23, 24 And was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only, that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. In Syria and Cilicia, Paul won the endorsement of all the churches of Judea by his preaching. All the churches everywhere, even those of Judea, could testify that he had preached the same faith everywhere. And, Paul adds, these churches glorified God in me, not because I taught that circumcision in the law of Moses should be observed, but because I urged upon all faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. End of chapter 1 
Recording by Bill Mosley, Frelsburg, Texas, USA.